Hey everybody, welcome to Blockworks. This is Alf speaking. I'm the author of the free newsletter, The Macro Compass, and the guy behind the Twitter handle at MacroAlf. I'm going to be collaborating with Blockworks from now onward, so just subscribe to the channel if you want to hear more of these interviews. Today, my guest is Brent Donnelly, who's the president of Spectrum Markets and a former FX trader. Hey, Brent, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Um... Yeah, it's been good to meet you in person. Uh, I see you on Twitter. We always uh, cross paths, so good to see you in real life. Amongst other things, you're an FX expert, so I wanted to pick your brain on this dollar weaponization story. So the background here is that uh, the U.S. has been using through um, sanctions, basically has been um, avoiding that the Bank of Russia access their FX reserves denominated in dollars. And by the way, Europe is doing the same. So there is a narrative developing out there that, you know, every emerging market car, uh, country or any other country that has accumulated dollar reserves might actually have a problem going forward and therefore they might trust the dollar less. So what's your, what's your take on these dollar weaponizations? So I definitely think it's relevant in kind of like an intellectual way, but I also think that it's very difficult to trade depending on your time horizon. So I think people have to be cognizant of the timing mismatch between talking about what could be like a 25-year theme or a 10-year theme or whatever, and then the relevant you know, actions that people should be taking in the market. So the issue, the fundamental issue, there's two issues with the whole story, which is, yes, it makes sense that as a central bank holding a lot of U.S. treasuries, especially China, you see what has happened and you say, okay, I thought this was money, but maybe it's not really money. Um, you know, is it, is it, are, are my FX reserves safe? And the answer is a little bit, they're a little bit less safe than you thought they were. Um, however, there's a lot of sort of things that go the other way. So first of all, this happened with Iran already. So much of what has happened to Russia kind of happened similar. It's not exactly the same, but SWIFT and all that. There were some similarities. They de-dollarized. Russia had already de-dollarized. Mostly that happened in 2018. Um, and the ability for China to de-dollarize is, is, it's just very challenging because of the lack of alternatives. So the reason that the U.S. has been the reserve currency is, I mean, there's many reasons, but one of them is just the deep capital markets and deep um, bond markets. And those don't exist elsewhere. And like you said, the sanctions are coming from Europe too. So the euro is not going to work. Um, you know, the, generally when people think about alternatives to the U.S. dollar system, um, China, China, and maybe uh, the yuan tends to be in the conversation. Now, obviously, China can't hold its own own reserves in its own currency, so that doesn't make sense. So then, some people think the release valve will be gold. And I think that does make sense. Like there is an argument that essentially what we're seeing is that like fiat currencies aren't quite what we thought they were. Um, they're being printed in unlimited quantities. They can be shut off. You know, you can pull a switch in the SWIFT system and essentially demonetize what we thought was money. So I think the, the argument that gold should gain market share in terms of central bank holdings is valid. But I mean, having traded with central banks for, you know, since I started in 1995, they're slow moving organizations that are very, very cautious. And like, I'm not an expert on China, but I know the gist of, of their strategy it tends to be one of their 
edges is that they can play the long, the super long game. So to me, what that means is there's kind of this permanent bid for gold. Um, but so maybe as a, if, you know, if you were had it as 5% of your portfolio, maybe you want to slowly go to eight or something like that as an investor. But, you know, I think the, the issue that people are having now is they're long gold on this, which is a pretty substantial sounding story, like Bretton Woods three kind of story. Um, but their stop loss is like 150 bucks below the market. And I don't think it's that kind of trade. I think it's like a long-term investment kind of trade, but um, there's so many other factors that drive the value of the dollar and the value of gold other than reserve manager behavior. And that, like I said, I think reserve managers generally will be very, very slow to, to make changes. So to me, it's an interesting theme, but the absolute, I think the one really big way that people misunderstand this is to think that it's going to have a negative impact on the external value of the dollar. Like the dollar is going to collapse because of, of this story. And I would say that that's probably not the case. And we have a lot of evidence of, you know, there's been a decent amount of de-dollarization that has happened over the years. Um, you know, the percent share of dollar holdings has gone down a lot in terms of the magnitude. Um, you know, Russia basically went to zero dollars, et cetera. And the external value of the dollar is very strong um, because it's influenced by many, many, many other things. So maybe like the ceiling for the dollar is lower and the floor is lower because of this. But it's not a reason to like exit all your U.S. assets uh, or your U.S. dollar holdings. I just don't think it's that kind of story. It's a very, very long term story. People like to talk about the death of the dollar because it's fun to talk about. Um, so, and because I've been doing this since 1995, it's a theme that's just been around pretty much my, my entire life. And so one time, just for the heck of it, I went and looked at all the Time Magazine and Economist covers that like say death of dollar or like the debt bubble is about to explode or, you know, that the, the US hegemony is over. And honestly, it goes back to 1968. So it actually goes back even before like the gold window stuff and Bretton Woods and all that. Um, there, it's a persistent fear, which is grounded in some a lot of reality. You know, there's a lot of crazy things happening all the time with with um, payments like um, pension, oblig pension liabilities and all that kind of stuff. But like I said, you know, I remember in 1985, it was like the pension liability uh, bomb that's about to blow up. And they put up this big sign in, in Times Square, the, the, the U.S. debt clock. And I mean, that debt clock is still there. So I, I think all these things are important and relevant, especially as we went to more of like an MMT kind of style of, of, of fiscal and monetary post-COVID. But I would just caution people not to overreact to something that is like, it's like trading demographics or whatever, right? It's, it's important and it should be part of your investment process. But also you need to understand the cyclical factors just dominate all these structural things unless you have an extremely long time horizon. So Brent, on this demographic stuff, I want to pick it up from there. Uh, I attach a lot of value and do a lot of analysis on demographics. And it's one of the reasons why I've been a bond bull for the last, whatever, 10 years since I've been in, in this business, basically. But if Powell tonight would come out and say, I'm going to dump all my treasuries in QT to the dealers all tonight, then 
fuck demographics. I mean, 30-year bonds are going to spike to the roof in terms of right, years. I mean, right. there, is, there, are, there are cyclical drivers and long-term drivers. And so people tend to mix them up very often. Mm. We're going to cover this part later. I want to ask you a bit about your risk management and how do you think about long-term and short-term yeah. trades. But let's, let's talk for a second more about um, this dollar story. You mentioned before that um, you are thinking in terms of probabilities. Mm. So while there might be a bit of a higher probability that you know the do, the do, there is a lower dollar ceiling, let's yeah. say, and maybe the floor has changed as well, you always think about what's the alternative. And you, you slightly mentioned, but I want to hear more about why is actually the dollar chosen to be the reserve currency at the moment? What are the qualities, the features that the reserve currency should have to be elected as a reserve currency? So the main thing that that is required is is deep capital markets because you know you're just talking about whatever say you know China's got four trillion a trillion here a trillion there say whatever ten trillion of reserves uh, I don't know what the number is but something like that those reserves um, don't want to buy a whole bunch of physical gold and buy warehouses to store that gold in and then hire a bunch of security guards so you know there's a limit to different different assets. And how much of it you can buy. So like even a, a very liquid market like Canada, um, China would have trouble getting all the Canada that they want in their portfolio because like they can buy all the like Ontario, Saskatchewan bonds they want. Those markets are just not big enough. Right. And so same with New Zealand. And so those currencies and those markets tend to you know represent, say, three percent of holdings, two percent of holdings for a lot of um, central banks. And so that's like in this world that we live in now, this wasn't always the case, but in this world, that's really like the number one thing. And then after that, like, you know, what generally what they want is some kind of return on assets. So, you know, there was kind of an aversion to some of the European assets for a while because they were negative yielding. Um, but I would say much more important than yield and return on assets is just liquidity. And then there's sort of more philosophical things like generally you the it, in the course of like the Dalio timeline all the way back to like 1400 or whatever. It's a country with this that's self-sufficient, that has a strong military. Um, that's like the global superpower is kind of generally the tends to be the reserve currency. Um, the, and I mean, I, I can't really argue against the U.S. Although so so I think what. In terms of like thinking about probabilities, the mistake I think people make is generally thinking that the change is the same as the level. So like the level of U.S. military superiority is still very high, even if it's declining. You know, the level of, of U.S. innovation vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world is still very high. And and so like the U.S., you know, is self-sufficient in food, self-sufficient in, in petroleum products. The U.S. is still like a very strong. I'm Canadian, by the way, so it's not home bias. Um, the U.S. still has like a lot of strong features, but most of those features are in decline. And so the question is, like, how long does that decline take? And generally, my my answer to that question is that the decline takes longer than you would think. It started in whatever 1971, um, you know, as with breaking the gold standard, and so I, I guess my caution to people would be that this is an interesting intellectual thing and it's relevant for investors, but it's also something I think you have to keep in mind that is like an extremely slow, slow process. And, you know, there's a lot of entrenched systems that support the dollar um, as a reserve currency. 
and you know China pricing oil and yuan and doing some trades with Russia isn't going to change that overnight. So that answer to your question then means like, okay, what are the alternatives? And you can go, okay, well, you know, China bond market is small, Japanese, you know, you can start going all around the world. And that's part of the reason for gold is that the, first of all, if you're, if the point of these countries is to protect themselves from being labeled as a hostile nation. So like, that's what happened with Russia, right? They're labeled as a hostile nation. And so they get cut off from SWIFT or from the dollar system. Now, it doesn't, you know, there, there's not that many places to go if you're believing that because generally like the U S has a lot of allies still. Right. So, you know, where you can't really go to Europe, you can't really go to yen, you know, those are, those are two of the biggest economies in the world that you just crossed off the list. So the list just gets really small and then you go, huh, well, if we're going to do this, we better do it over the course of 10 years. And, you know, I actually think um, the very end game could, could end up being a bipolar system where, or a tripolar system even where CNH is part of it and Bitcoin is part of it and the U.S. dollar is still a bigger part of it. Um, and then you have these regional areas where people are, are trading commodities for Bitcoin um, or trading commodities for CNH um, or for Yuan. Um, but it doesn't have to be so binary. Like there is a, so people like to talk about like the death of the dollar kind of thing. It doesn't have to die necessarily. It can just be like a slow and gradual like decline of the usage. And then all of a sudden, like when I'm 99 years old, I go, huh, well, dollar isn't as dominant as it used to be. You know, there's little pockets of places where everyone just trades everything for Bitcoin. And I, I think that's what will eventually happen. But you know, I'm not holding my breath and cutting all my dollar assets because of it. Well, thanks, Brent, for making sense of a probabilistic scenario of how this, you know, reserve system could work. Uh, let's move to a more short-term topic on FX, right? Because uh, there is something cyclical going on as well. And I know you have a view on euro dollar. Can you elaborate a bit on the short-term view on FX? You sure. Have? So actually, it's funny because coming into this year, the story was central bank divergence. So it was going to be like Fed doing a lot, hiking and QT, and then ECB and BOJ kind of on hold, probably not going to do anything um, because of a whole bunch of reasons, mostly like structurally low inflation, but a bunch of other stuff. And then um, if you look at a chart of euro dollar, it basically has gone like, like this. There's been like four separate narratives. And so two of them were ECB normalizing faster than expected and ECB hikes and, you know, obviously European rates moved a lot. But the underlying, so usually the anchor for FX is the interest rate differential between two countries, as you know. Um, I'm just saying this for the viewers. But um, so that has actually just been pushing more and more in favor of the dollar. So the mm -hmm. original thesis of, you know, Fed's going to be a lot more hardcore than the other central banks on normalization has been correct. But people have got whipsawed so many times that the, the position ended up kind of getting washed out. And now you kind of have a setup where interest rate differentials are making new like highs for the dollar, lows for the euro. So like five-year Germany, U.S. is at 2.25% or something. That's a big difference, right? And um, so now I think we're going to actually get a, a meaningful dollar higher trade over the next four weeks, um, especially as 
basically with people were very focused on QT and, and the fed and all that, but then everyone kind of took their eye off the ball because of Russia. So like generally my framework is that the market can really only focus on one thing at a time. So the market was focused on the fed and then the market got worried about Russia and Ukraine. Um, and generally I find that geopolitics trigger a lot of fear, um, that flows through to the market. But the actual economic impact is not always as big as as the fear trade kind of suggested it would be. And that's kind of how this has played out. Like we got the big short squeeze. But I think the whole Russia-Ukraine thing is mostly a red herring for risky assets. And fundamentally, what's most important is the level and direction of liquidity. So the I remember seeing David Tepper on CNBC in 2010, when, and everyone was bearish at that time. Like I don't know, S and P was at 1,200 or something, and literally like every everybody was bearish, you know, except for a couple of people. And he's like, liquidity is increasing. You got to buy stocks. I don't care what how bad things look. This and that. You got to own stocks. And uh, Dave Zervos actually has been kind of like that too. And they were right, you know, like whatever, however bad things looked at that time, yeah. the it, liquidity, the, the delta of liquidity has been the simplest and most effective framework for measuring the direction of risky assets for the last 12 years, right? Like, and so now, you know, the tide's coming out, QT's starting. And the crazy thing is like, everyone knows this, you know, liquidity on or off kind of thing. But people got so distracted, I think, by Russia that I don't even think the market's short now. Like market got squeezed so badly that I feel like, um, you know, the liquidity is about to come out in May. May May could be QT. And don't forget, like November, December, we weren't even talking about QT. It was like something that was way down the road. I think Waller or somebody mentioned it in December. That was the first. And then it became yeah. kind of like a thing in January. So now it's like it's April 6th. We're about to do QT in May. The speed with which this is all happening is is just absolutely mind-boggling. So now I think you're going to get a real dollar trade. And I think dollar yen is kind of like the sneak preview in that like we just went from 115 to 125 in a a snap. And people weren't really ready for that because dollar yen had been dead for so long. And generally with G10, you have like – the regime of this is boring and nothing's going on and euros just oscillating. Those are those are a major part of G10FX is just the, the nothing's going on kind of regimes. So then I think you have to be ready for the like, okay, something's actually going to happen regime. <laughs> and I think we saw that in Dalian and we're about to see it in euro. So I think euro goes to some around 105 into, into FOMC, which is May 4th. And um, I think people are kind of numb to people are so used to a dovish fed um, and a slow moving fed that I think people are kind of numb to what's going on a little bit. Like the, the speed which with, with which they pivoted since they dropped transitory is pretty mind blowing. Like it makes sense given 7% inflation and whatever, but I think people are still in this mindset of like, Oh, the fed, you know, the feds overpriced. And in this part of the cycle, Generally, the Fed follows the pricing anyways. Like, so no matter how much pricing there is, like the the Fed, the market gave them 25 in March. So they hiked 25 in March. Now the market's giving them 50 in May. They're going to hike 50. So, and generally that's historically like rates drive the, the tightening generally, not the Fed, but the actual market. 
and then the Fed ratifies it by doing it. So the argument that like too much is priced in, I generally don't find very useful in tightening cycles because if the market prices more, the, the, the central bank will do more, um, especially the Fed when they're so far behind the curve. And the other thing too, uh, just one last thing on this, is that the other reason people kind of don't believe it is that like if an alcoholic has a bottle of Jack Daniels in their hand and they're saying like, dude, I'm getting sober, I promise you, you don't really believe them. And that's what the Fed was, right? So they were saying like, we're now taking inflation seriously. Brainerd said it when she was renominated and all that. But yet they were still buying assets up until six weeks ago. So like you don't believe that that they're going to be serious about about tightening because they're still buying assets. They have this belief that things that they've guided in the past, they need to do or or it'll hurt their future forward guidance credibility. And what it's actually done is really hurt their their tightening credibility because you can't say like, hey, we're going to tighten and we're worried about inflation at the same moment as you're buying assets in the and buying you know assets in the market. It makes no sense. So I think that's another reason why people are like, yeah, yeah, okay, but like everyone basically, a lot of people are just like, yeah, I get it, but a lot's priced in, you know, seven hikes. How can they hike more than that? Okay, sure, but people were saying that at four hikes and five and six and seven, you know, like that's that's kind of the way. So um, yeah, so I think the dollar does well across the board, um, and especially against euro because. The thing with one big sort of story in FX right now is um, terms of trade and capital accounts. Are, and so that is a big problem for Europe with the energy crisis. Um, and then also, I think, so most of the downside kind of surprises, I think, would come, or, or sorry, most of the surprises in Euro in the next like six to eight weeks would be to the downside, I think, as well. Um, like the French election, man, I'm not that excited about that. But the ECB kind of saying like, hey, we got to hit the pause button here. There's a lot of demand destruction. We're getting worried about, you know, the way the curve's inverted, whatever. Um, you know, they can always fall back on the idea that demand. there's so much demand destruction or like ZEW survey is so bad that like the job has already been done to destroy the demand side and prices will come down and like it's transitory, basically, they can say. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a downside risk to Euro as well. And then the third downside risk to Euro is um, an escalation of sanctions. So the more graphic and unpleasant the video is from Ukraine, the more the political pressure kind of moves from, well, the only place we get our energy is kind of like the argument now to like, we have no choice. We don't want to be, um, you know, we don't want to be financing this these atrocities that everyone's seeing on TV and, and yelling at us about. So. I think there's three potential catalysts that could push euro lower and you don't even need those because the the rate story is just moving enough that the path of least resistance should be down anyways. Short term cyclical moving to May, euro dollar down to 105, that's your base yep. case. But then before that we talked about a potential for long term uh, you know de-dollarization across the world. So the question I want to ask you is how do you split in your head and how do you approach a long-term trade and a short-term trade from a risk management perspective being a former trader and still a, a risk taker right yeah so i mean i still do trade um but i'm not a market maker anymore but um my so i think this is a really important question for everyone on the whole entire spectrum from like day traders to like 10-year 
time horizon investors is knowing what your time horizon is and being good at that and then being able to identify why you have an edge in that slot. So, you know, like bad traders turn their bad trades into investments. Like that's one of the kind of jokes, right? Is that like, well, it went down 20%. I guess it's an, I'll put that one in the investment pile. Um, so I, my niche is trading. So like my time horizon is basically one day to one month in terms of the trades that I take. But my approach is way bigger picture because the way that I look at it is like, let's say the equilibrium price now in any asset is the sum of all the information that, you know, that's knowable in the world or whatever, then you have to kind of have a pretty good idea of what all that information is so that as new information comes, you know, whether it matters for the price. So that's kind of my framework is like, okay, I understand the global macro. I know why people are bullish Aussie. And I know why people are like, you know, haven't been short euros lately because of this, this and this. And then I know how to respond to new information. Um, so for me, that makes risk management much easier. So mostly I use technical analysis um, or I even use like simple things like based on the time horizon of my trade. If it's a one week trade, I'll just take average daily range times two. And that's my stop loss. So like I think the risk management can be relatively simple um, and in trading, it's easy because if you don't have risk management, you'll end up blowing up um, and you won't make money. So you're kind of forced to have a good risk management system. I think as a longer term investor, it's more difficult because the temptation is like, oh, I loved it at 10. When it goes to eight, I want to buy more. And then when it's at four, I want to buy like triple down, you know, like Lehman's people did that with Lehman Brothers stock. Yeah. Um, and so, but then again, also most of the research shows that using stop losses in, as an investor reduces returns because it creates suboptimal exits. Like, you know, you're selling low and buying high sometimes. Um, so I think like for investors, it's much more difficult. And I think for investors, I, I still think everyone should use stop losses because I think it keeps you intellectually honest. Um, like I know you, you're, you're much bigger picture than I am. But you still use stop losses because yeah. that's the, the that's the proof that you're wrong. And actually, an interesting thing when I was researching, um, like, does technical analysis work is like an interesting subject, I find. And I write about it in my books a lot. So I've gone into the rabbit hole a few times. And basically, my conclusion is technical analysis does not work. Like, you can't backtest head and shoulders and all that stuff. However, there's also research that shows Portfolio managers that use technical analysis outperform those that don't. And it mm -hmm. seems like a mismatch, like a cognitive dissonance kind of thing. But I think it actually makes sense because people that use technical analysis have a point where they are forced to admit that they're wrong. Whereas a portfolio manager that doesn't is going to tend to be adding to losing positions and, and like, you know, not cutting losers, but adding to them. Um, so, for me, generally, I always have a take profit and a stop loss on every single trade I do, um, no matter what the time horizon, unless it's options. And I'm pretty good at sticking to it now. Like I, I actually think that is one of the most like one of the most important things for succeeding in trading is just sticking to your plan, because once you have risk on, you tend to be more emotional and biased, and like all the cognitive like Kahneman, you know, thinking fast and thinking slow. Those biases, I feel like, are 10 times more powerful when you have risk on 
because you have like, phys- I mean, especially trading, you have physiological responses to, to the risk and all that. So you tend to act in a lot more biased way. So I feel like putting stuff, putting parameter, setting parameters ex ante and sticking to them is the way to, to the, the way to, to go on risk management. And then you don't also have to white knuckle every trade and, and constantly be reevaluating. You're just like, okay, this is my trade. These are my parameters. And then you just let the thing cook and, and hopefully it's a delicious treat when it comes out of the oven. <laughs> it's invaluable, Brent, to hear these things from a guy who has traded for decades, right? And I also recognize that the intellectual honesty part is by far the most important, mm. both if you're a short-term trader and if you're an investor. I mean, being a short-term trader, it's simpler from a risk management perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, because you set up your system ex ante, you size your positions, you have your stop losses, you have your entry, you have your system. If you can stick to it, then it's mentally easier, let's say, to, to get around with it. Being an investor, medium to long-term investor, it's a bit more of a nuanced exercise. But despite that, I think intellectual honesty can do a lot for you because as my mentor used to say, Alf, when facts change, you change your mind, even if you're an investor. So you have to continue to ask yourself, um, you know, every now and then, has something really changed in a material way to change my underlying assumption? And as long as you are intellectually honest, you'll be able to also take losses if you're an investor and avoid those losses turn out into a, you know, wipeout event like Lehman Brothers, right? So one thing I think that has really helped me evolve as a trader is just embracing the idea of being wrong. Like it's, you know, you're going to be wrong X amount of times and that number X is going to be pretty big over the course of a career. (laughs) And it's good to just say, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm wrong on this. And you know, the, uh, I'm going to cut and I'm going to move on. And I think it's harder to do when you're young because probably like, you're more, you have a bigger ego generally when you're young or like I definitely did, but I think a lot of generally that's a rule. And also you haven't experienced the pain of being wrong as many times. So one thing actually that helped me with that a lot was collecting data on my trading because then I started to get a good idea for what my win rate was. And then like, I know my win rate's basically 50%, but the way that I make money is my wins are bigger than my losses, obviously. And so if you know you're going to be wrong 50% of the time, it doesn't really hurt that much when you're wrong. You're like, okay, wrong again, you know, like big, big flipping deal. Um, what I actually get upset about um, is when I don't stick to my parameters and, and change my, my stops and all that. But I've kind of grown out of that by mostly automating everything. Um, so I would say like embracing the, you know, not, not that you're going to be wrong all the time, but embracing the possibility that you could be wrong. And then I think that also opens your mind to what the alternative hypothesis is. So like if you're always kind of thinking, yeah, you know what, I might be wrong on this, then that's like the right mindset for allowing new information that goes against your idea um, to come in, right? Because like confirmation bias, which I'm sure most people are familiar with, but confirmation bias is a very strong human trait that, or human bias, that means that when you have a view, you allow all the, the confirming information into your brain and you reflexively, without realizing it, subconsciously block the, the non-confirming information. So when you kind of accept, you know, on a more like deeper level that you're going to be wrong a lot, then you are also a lot more open to like, okay, why might I be wrong? Like what's, what's, what's the scenario? What's the alternative hypothesis where 
you know, I think Euro's going down, but what's what's the the hypothesis where Euro goes up 500 points? And then you start thinking, okay, now I can list like what might happen in that case. And then hopefully you can say, okay, I don't really think those are high probability likelihood things or events or catalysts. So I, you know, I'm good. But then sometimes if you're good at exploring the alternative hypothesis and you have a decent network, you know, you get feedback and you're like, yeah, you know what? That thing that I didn't think of that someone just told me is actually true. And maybe I shouldn't be short euros. And you're able to just, you know, you don't really like feel this strong emotional attachment to your trades. It's more like this long series of probabilistic experiments that, you know, are 50, 50, but they pay two to one and you just keep running that experiment and you're going to make a lot of money. Well, Brent, I'd like to add something on risk management, but this was a primer, really awesome. Um, if the audience here at BlockWorks wants to find more about you, I mean, I know you've written an amazing book that I've read, by the way. So feel free to tell people where to find more about you. Sure. Um, the easiest way is to just go to my website, which is Spectra Markets. So it's Spectra, like with an A, markets.com. And um, so most of the stuff is on there. And then the book is called Alpha Trader. Um, and that's on Amazon. Uh, people can grab that as well. Yeah, well, Brent, uh, I can only thank you for being here uh, for this first interview I've, uh, I, I've done for BlockWorks. There would be many guys, so subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. Brent, uh, thanks again for being here. It's been a pleasure sure. to have you as a guest. All right, thank you, Alf, and uh, I'll hit subscribe right now myself. <laughs> Ciao, Brent. See you soon. Ciao, guys. Thank you.